Good afternoon. This is Valentine's Day, the uh, 14th of February, 2023. And I thought today, because we've been getting pretty um, detailed in our immunoepigenetics lectures, that we might take a breather from that and talk about general research methods. I talk about how experiments are designed in a lot of detail when we describe uh, peer-reviewed original research. So that's not what today's uh, lecture is going to be about. This is going to be a very general understanding of research methods. So let me get started. I thought it would be kind of nice because it's Valentine's Day, and maybe you're not interested in just biochemistry, which is unfathomable to me. All right. So what's the scientific method? A lot of different ways of looking at this, but I put together sort of a, an outline of this. and Let me follow through with you. You can start off with the suspicion that there is a factor or an exposure or some kind of event that can influence an occurrence of disease. Or maybe, if you're doing biostatistics, a specific or noted health outcome. So how do you get about tearing the first page off of that? There, of course, could be observations in clinical practice. These would be by individual clinicians taking notes and sharing them. But you also have examination of disease and outcome patterns. Again, this could be done with biostatistics. For example, do subpopulations have higher or lower instances for a particular disease or progression of the disease. Second thing, are disease rates increased in the presence of certain exposure to organic compounds, for example? Another way of looking at it is you have a course, this is my field because I'm a research scientist by training, the observations in laboratory research. So finally, that this would be coupled to that, theoretical, dialectical argumentation. I won't call it speculation, because speculation can be done at the armchair, of course. And scientists do this all the time. I certainly do. But when we want to talk about the tight control over scientific method, we don't simply want to speculate because speculation can include only personal encounters or experiences. That includes with the literature and with research in your laboratory, by the way, because that's what those things are for a scientist. But also it can um, allow for opinion to enter into the very first pay, uh, phase of scientific method. We want to keep opinion as far as we can away from this. So what's the difference between dialectical analysis and opinion? Well, dialectical analysis is based on knowing something about evidence and justification of arguments, knowing something about getting a valid argument or a sound argument out of known observations and coming to a dialectical conclusion that's different than simply having an opinion. And so there's more detail in the kind of 
conceptual and idea and, and imaginative work that has to go into generating a premise. So there's more to it than simply having an opinion. And, and I know that people will argue with this because, of course, if you're all a bunch of scientists, you're going to have a, maybe a more informed but still some level of bias because each individual scientist is going to have a bias about what he or she believes is, let's say, you know, the most important metabolic component in, I don't know, um, cardiovascular disease, right? And so they're going to know the literature. They're going to know their own research. They're going to know what they've heard and what they've experienced over the years. And that's going to all conform to some kind of um, asymmetric bias on understanding that is still nevertheless dialectical in analysis. And I argue that's still better than just pure opinion. Okay. And I have good resources to say that uh, about Socrates and Plato. Right? Okay. Now, what are the basic elements of scientific method? Well, there's empiricism. This is, since it's strict to the method or a method that employs inquiry conducted through direct observation, where information must be justified via data that has been tabulated and examined and then synthesized into a component we could call evidence. That's one, empiricism. Second, determinism. Now, this is a proposition that events occur according to some universal law, let's say a law in physics or a law in chemistry. And that law prescribes certain paradigms that are believed to occur without major changes within a spectrum that can be measured for outliers, for example. And of course, these deterministic universal laws have to be super reproducible. Every time you go and look, you'll see it again and again and again, right? Kind of like the coherence to all the other components of nature you say are true to life. Now, the third kind of scientific method, again, an element of it, is pure skepticism. Now, skepticism comes all the way back uh, to Puranic skepticism and sexist skepticism, and that described by Cicero, uh, the, Ro the Roman uh, senator, and carried through the generations, through the scholastics, all the way up through philosophical entrainment. But what does skepticism suggest? It, it's a, a sort of a philosophy that says that any, any proposition is open to <coughs> analysis and therefore critique. Okay. Now, <coughs> this has been argued a long time, ever since atomic theory of what is true and what is false around the turn of the last century. But you could argue that, well, even skepticism if a, you're a pure skeptic, you should be skeptical of 
maybe you're wrong about the fact that the skeptical perspective is the best, you see? So it kind of falls apart. In a way, though, skepticism almost reinforces certain deterministic features of nature, doesn't it? Because you're saying you're skeptical about and then fill in the blank. You're skeptical, skeptical about the fact that enzymes catalyze reactions. I mean, nobody would say that, but let's just take it as a generic, obviously falsifiable premise. Well, then you're saying essentially, well, then enzymes do catalyze reactions. You see, protein enzymes catalyze reactions. And now I'm going to say I'm going to be skeptical of that. So you're already saying that there is a premise out there that you have to try to defeat. So in a way, skepticism is always begging the question. That's why I try to avoid it. I use the word sometimes loosely, like most people do. But in general, skepticism as an element of scientific methodology is not sound. It's better to go with empiricism. And I would say informed empiricism. Try to avoid determinism for the reasons I went through on those Partita lectures, because most of that fails as well. Because you know, to try to argue that there are specific laws in nature are only derived from the natural systems that you've been measuring. And maybe you're measuring them with you know, in, enhanced sensorial activity that itself is designed in a way that's biased to get to a certain event ontology. You understand? Okay, so empiricism is probably the most valued um, element of the scientific method. Not without its criticism. And I've, and I've criticized it many times because we can be wrong. Now, let's just run down what could be a scientific method of analysis. First, you want to choose, design a question to investigate. Then you want to directly identify via deduction and hypothesis. It's the hypothetical deduction. And that has to relate to the question you are investigating. Third, you want to have testable predictions in the hypothesis. So can you find a time when the null hypothesis does and then does not function? And how would you go about proving the positive and the negative? And this involves, of course, the generation of controls, but that's further down the method. In fact, the very next statement I could make about the scientific method is you're going to design an experimental program to specifically answer the hypothesis in question. Now, often this is where research makes a lot of U-turns and inappropriate left-hand turns when the light is red. <laughs> and what I mean by those metaphors is we want to test a specific hypothesis because, remember, the hypothesis has to relate to a specific question, and that's how you start it. But as you get into developing hypotheses as a scientist, and we do this every day just when we're hypothesizing about any natural phenomenon, like is it going to snow today or this afternoon or tonight? We start influencing our own 
deductive reasoning process while we're thinking about how to generate an experiment. And by the time we get to actually generating specific experiments at the lab bench, it is possible to lose track of that original question. Now, here's the simplest way for that to happen. If you're a research scientist, you have your laboratory, you have graduate students and postdocs, you have a certain kind of equipment in your laboratory and you have expertise in your laboratory. Let's say you do a lot of gas chromatography, mass spectroscopy or liquid chromatography, mass spec, mass spec, or you do a lot of RT-PCR, you do a lot of cloning, you do a lot of electrophoresis, you do a lot of uh, chromatography, you see all the major biochemical techniques, uh, so many more, right? Well, you may design an experiment around what equipment you have. And the equipment, of course, is going to be that which you have expertise in. You as the principal investigator that's designing the experiment because you're writing uh, it all out because you're hoping to get funding to do it because you need money to do it. And you're thinking about what you have on hand. That includes the expertise of your technicians, your students, and your postdocs, and also their individual interests. Because no good scientific laboratory works by having someone at the top that dictates the rules of engagement of even generating an hypothesis. Because if you don't have individuals in the lab that are working on it, that are enthusiastic, either about refuting the null hypothesis uh, or are truly neutral or about supporting the null hypothesis because of previous experiments that they've encountered, thus generating a dialectical series of analytical conclusions, then it's not likely you're going to have that kind of eagerness in the laboratory. And I can tell you from experience that when you're working on a, a project in the lab, you might find yourself thinking about it when you're walking, thinking about it when you're going to sleep and waking up, thinking about it when you're encountering uh, everyday, everyday uh, situations at home or at work. And then the rest of the time, you might actually be working in the laboratory. So you could be totally consumed by the experiments, especially because many, many experiments don't go as planned. Something happened to the reagent. Something happened to the instrument. The controls aren't working correctly. Um, you can't get a standard baseline. Uh, you know, th th any number of things can occur because you're always trying to test your positive and negative controls on each one of your experiments. And when you start to see a lot of variation, then you have to stop, assess what's wrong, and sometimes start over. So because of that total consuming effect of doing research, you want to have someone that's very dedicated to keeping a clear mind of what was the original question they were looking at so that during the process, you don't become, uh, you know, stray away from that. And, and yet allow yourself to completely stray away when you realize the experiment in question and even the ideas around the question that you originally asked in the lab meeting were wrong. And if they were wrong, then you have to admit that and then move on, right? Okay. So next, you have to collect data in the experiment. This also means really good note-taking. You have to be careful about everything you record, what you're measuring. 
So you're going to have a lot of readout on modern day instrumentation that'll give you some hard copy from the scintillation counter or from the mass spec or, you know, even, you know, chromatograms and whatnot. You're going to want to have all that in a notebook and you're going to want to have annotations around everything you're doing to explain exactly what you were experiencing in the lab when you were doing these experiments. Because the, exper the experience itself could be really important, especially like when you're doing an extraction. If you remember the, the day you were doing a massive extraction of neural tissue, that there was a power outage or that the, temp the temperature in the laboratory wasn't as controlled as well as you wanted to. And it was a lot colder, a lot warmer. Or there was a fire, fire alarm that everybody had to go out of the building for for 20 minutes. All that has to be recorded in that data because this is going to allow you to very carefully examine that data and know whether or not it should be synthesized ultimately way down the road into evidence. And I've gotten criticism about calling it a synthesis, but a synthesis is exactly what it is. It's not that it's synthetic in, this, in the colloquial sense of the word that, oh, it's not real. It's just the opposite of that. It means you're taking um, a collection of information and you are rationally synthesizing it. You're putting all those components together using all your faculties of understanding, all the concepts you have all your faculties of imagination, that is all the ideas you've had, and then using the, the mechanism of a transcendental method to stand above the understanding and the imagination, those two major faculties of reason, and do the appropriate mentation to put those together and do the synthesis of the experience that is the data generated from the experiment. Right. All right. So that's all just in collect data and experiment. Now, next, you determine the results. Remember, the results are essentially that raw data that came out of the individual experiments. But you have this is where the synthesis starts. You have to assess the validity. That means you have to, doesn't mean you throw out data you don't like, just the opposite. It means that you have to be very careful not to superannuate the data that you think supports what your theory or or your less uh, less indelible hypothesis might have been at the initial uh, cognitive presentation that you started with. So that's a very important aspect. That's how you get the synthesis going. You have to make sure that these are valid and sound results that can then be used as supportive evidence towards either agreeing with or not agreeing with the initial null hypothesis on the question that you formulated sometimes months ago. And so that's the last step of it. You have to determine if the results are appropriate enough to use as evidence to make an induction determine whether or not your hypothesis is correct. And then you can say, yes, in this individual case, we found this or that. Therefore, in most other cases of similar biochemical phenomena, we expect to find the same kite. And that would be the final stage, the induction, which can then be used as one of the deductive components or elements 
for the next new hypothesis. Okay, so you know if you think about how way I'm going through this and I'm dissecting the experimental method and the scientific method, I'm sure that even if you're not a scientist, just you realize once when I go through this in slow motion, which is what I'm doing, the mind works this way all the time. It's a mind of measurement, but it's also a mind that is conditioned by experience and reasoning to know what are the limits of the possibilities that might be at hand when examining a specific component of the natural environment. It doesn't mean that you realize uh, all the time that there are probabilities and there are possibilities, and you want to focus on those probabilities. But that is another corollary to the reasoning method that you have to really sharpen when you're doing research science. Because something that is probabilistic doesn't mean that's what you're experiencing and what you're witnessing in your experiment. You have to always have an open mind of the possibilistic because that's actually the world we live in. We just think we know the guardrails, right? Discussion of the aperon, the the unbounded, because there is the unbounded nature of nature, right? We don't really know any of the laws we claim to understand about chemistry or physics, um, because most of those are mathematically modeled. And mathematical models can be uh, historically magnificently wrong, and also historically and magnificently correct. But you can't know at any given time that one of those so-called laws and scare quotes is now going to be refuted here and now. Right? You have to be very careful. So you have to be a, always have a possibilistic mindset. That's what I'm trying to say here. All right, so let's uh, let's move on, shall we? All right. Um, what do I want to say here? All right, let's let's go this way. Let's say that, let's get a little bit more specific. Say you have a, an idea that there is a particular event. Let's say it's an exposure that influences a result that could be the occurrence of a disease or a unique outcome in health. So, with that in mind, the first thing you're going to be doing is observe what's in the clinical practice. So you can go to the literature. Or if you're a clinician, you'll have your own experience and you have the experience of your colleagues, which you can confer with. But you also have to do an examination of the disease. So that's a real-time event. And you have to examine the disease and the outcome patterns of that disease, or what we call sequelae. So here's some questions you might ask. Do certain subpopulations have higher or lower incidence of disease? Because remember, we're talking about you have a suspicion that there's some event or exposure that influences the disease you're interested in. Let's Again, let's just take cardiovascular disease, okay, which is quite nebulous, as you know from listening to my lectures and your general knowledge base. 
So you have a suspicion of specific factor. Let's say it's cholesterol. And you think maybe this has something to do with cardiovascular disease because of its com component metabolic corruption of um, the sequelae that result in atherosclerosis. Right? Well, then first thing you might want to ask once you get through that, basically hubristic point of view, in my opinion, I'm a lipid biochemist, so uh, I speak with some validity in my uh, dialectical analysis. But anyway, you could still ask a question of the subpopulations that have a higher or lower risk. And what are those risks? And are those risks correlated well with the disease occurrence within a population and the severity of the occurrence? So. All of that then also has to be wrapped up, bundled up, and included in the observations you gain in laboratory research. And while the laboratory research is being conducted, there is always room for theoretical argumentation, like in the lab meetings and when you're presenting your data at scientific meetings locally, like in the university campus, nationally or internationally, where you're going to get uh, critique of what you're describing your research is saying. And from that, profoundly more knowledge can come your way as to interpretation. Okay. So maybe what you thought was simple about science, uh, the methods of science, you're learning. And if I'm talking to scientists, I hope that uh, I'm not just, you know, stumbling around things you already know, but trying to dissect it. And one of the reasons I'm doing this, because I want, because sometimes you have to jump out of um, all of the individual peer-reviewed papers, and you have to remember all this information as well. Because I can go and I can say something about, you know, an LNC RNA and how it's controlling the expression of a particular transcript, and that that's associated with an epigenetic phenomenon because of the transport of an otherwise metabolic enzyme being shuttled into the nucleus and bound to another protein and regulating that other protein's ability to deubiquitinylate a specific histone proximal to a specific promoter enhancer region on a gene that ultimately will or will not be transcribed and then possibly translocated after splicing and then translated into the cytoplasm and functional as a polypeptide. See, all of that has to be accepted in that one paper I may be talking about. But if I'm not thinking about the experimental design and the scientific method and the reasoning behind the way the experiments are conducted and the tools used to generate the data, <clears throat> results and evidence, then it doesn't matter how good the research may have been done if there's a fundamental flaw in the reasoning and you as the reader of that literature are aware of that flaw, then that has to come into play into whether or not you as a professor or you as a research scientist that's generating a research program for a laboratory or an institution or a private company is valid. You see? So all of that has to come into play.
before you can really subscribe to the fact that all the papers that you read in the literature, and that means each one at a time, rise to the occasion of being accepted according to scientific method. And even then, you're really only generating, again, a dialectical analysis. Isn't proof positive? All right, so where do we want to go now? All right, so when you identify variables you're interested in, you can ask about exposure, and that's going to include risk factors and also what may be protective factors, what may be predictable variables, and what may be natural treatments during the exposure phase of a disease. And then also, at the same time, you have to think about what is the specific outcome from the exposure? Is it a disease that can be well described diagnostically with a great deal of biomarkers and tissue specimens? So we say, yes, this is absolutely Burkitt's lymphoma. Or is it not a disease, but it's a syndrome? which falls into a generalized category? Or is it simply a single event of pathophysiology, which does not rise to the occasion of disease, you see? So these are really important factors too. And a lot of times people don't think about it um, when they're reading the literature because they assume if it's got a label of a disease, then what we're talking about in this particular clinical paper is exactly that disease. All right. I noticed my time is almost consumed, so I'm going to stop there. Hopefully, you're enjoying this on Valentine's Day. Um, yeah, I hope that you love it because it's Valentine's Day. And uh, this is Dr. Dan Guerra um, on the 14th of February, 2023, saying bye for now.